How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it, that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. Accept, Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. Chunimebaisimebashi 주님 내가 기쁨으로 드리는 감사의 기도를 즐거이 받아주시고 주님의 규례를 내게 가르쳐 주십시오. 내 생명은 언제나 위기에 처했습니다만 내가 주님의 법을 잊지는 않습니다. 악인들은 내 앞에다가 올모를 놓지만 나는 주님의 법도를 벗어나지 않습니다. 주님의 증거는 내 마음의 기쁨이요. 그 증거는 영원한 기업입니다. 내 마지막 순간까지 변함없이 주님의 율례를 지키기로 결심하였습니다. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was uh, eight years old, my parents signed me up for this weekly class called Bible Study Fellowship which was exactly as exciting as it sounds. Um, We had homework every week that was required reading and then this worksheet that accompanied it. And I have this vivid memory of the first Saturday that my dad sat me down for my Bible study homework. It was week one, so we started right at the beginning in Genesis and eventually we came to that phrase, they were both naked and felt no shame. And my little eight-year-old brain just could not handle the mention of nudity right there on the pages of Scripture. And so I started laughing hysterically. Um, He began to get frustrated, but the fact that I wasn't allowed to laugh only made it very, like, much harder not to laugh. And so we had this back-and-forth exchange until eventually he raised his voice and threatened punishment. So my little adolescent brain got the message, the Bible is a serious book. The first memorable impression I have of scripture involved threat, punishment, and a heavy sense of sternness. When I was a teenager, I fell in love with the God I had encountered a number of ways, most profoundly though through prayer, but I did notice that the people that I admired most, the people that seemed most acquainted with this God were equally acquainted with the revelation of this God through his written word. And so I decided to start trying to read a little bit of it every day. I set my alarm 15 minutes earlier so that uh, I could wake up and read his word first thing. Um, But for me, the Bible became sort of this item on my to-do list. I related to it a lot like most people relate to going to the gym. Like, I really should do this and I feel good when I do it, but I find myself pretty inconsistent and getting into it in fits and starts and I feel guilty when I don't do it. I'll for sure start tomorrow. The Bible became something I was supposed to get to. At age 17, my senior year of high school, my last class had this half hour block on Fridays for free reading. Read anything you want for the closing half hour of the school week. And so I felt this nudge from the Spirit that this was his invitation for me to get acquainted with God 
through Scripture. And so I carried my Bible around in my backpack every Friday through the hallways of my public high school, which I know is a very minor risk, but felt like a significant risk to 17-year-old me. And I took that Bible out of my backpack in the last half hour of every school week, and something happened several months into that routine. I was reading in the final chapters of John, and I was so undone by the portrait of Jesus, by love and flesh in a person, that I found myself weeping on the back row of this public school class during free reading time at the encounter I was having with him. And that day I fell in love not only with God, but with this book. Exactly one year later, I was on the back row of a different classroom, this one at Bible College. I was studying to become a pastor in rooms of other people studying to become pastors. And uh, there, the approach to scripture was rarely one of love. It was more master this book and then use it for your purposes. Use it to persuade people. Use it to combat those who disagree. Use it as a sponsor for your next big plan. And something happened to me there. Some of that got into me. And I started trying to master this book, to use it for my purposes. My first job after Bible college was leading a youth ministry in lower Manhattan made up entirely of first or second generation immigrant teens living below the poverty line. Each and every one of them spoke a different language in their home than English, which we spoke at the youth ministry. And so the first crowd that I taught this book to had a lower English reading comprehension level than the average seven-year-old in America. And that in many ways saved my life because it was there I discovered that Teaching this book on that level, it meant that it wasn't something I could master and use for my purposes, but it was the way that God had revealed himself to ordinary people and would go on revealing himself to more and more ordinary people. And today, I stand in front of you as someone who is absolutely in love with the scriptures. And my journey with this book has been a long and winding one full of plenty of bumps, but these pages have also been the primary source of encounter with Jesus throughout my life. It is the well that I come back to again and again to drink. And the point of sharing all of that with you is this. I have a story with Scripture. And so do you. You have your own version of familiarity or unfamiliarity with the biblical story, and so you enter today with a degree of openness or suspicion when it comes to the Bible based on your personal story. You have been shaped in your thinking and seeing and values and what you consider normal since the day you were born, so no one will ever come to the Bible with an entirely clean slate. Some of you will have your paper and pen out like this thing's exam prep because you hear that some people are feasting in this place and you want to figure out how to turn it into a feast for yourself. And Just as many, though, will have a guard up because you've only ever seen the Bible used as a weapon to cut people down or to win arguments or to prove a superior opinion. Maybe you were even taught to use it that way. It's the sword of the Spirit, but the enemy isn't other Christians with a different take. The enemy is the father of lies who finds pride and disunity just as effective as outright unbelief for edging you away from the creator's love. And still others, if you love Jesus, you crave experience with him, and the Bible's the part of the equation that you more or less have to put up with. And so you live with this passive sort of suspicion or resentment when it comes to scripture. You're pretty sure it's not okay to say this out loud, but there's definitely parts of the Bible you'd edit out if you could. There's definitely parts that you ignore or avoid. St. Augustine said, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. So if the church of previous generations was at her worst, a strict legalist waiting to slap you on the wrist, my fear is that the church of future generations will be like that mom from Mean Girls. Like, yeah, I'm a mom, but I'm the cool mom. Whatever goes at my house which of course is just a cheap facade to be liked by the very people that she's meant to raise into maturity. And then some of you are just outright offended by the Bible. Like, hold on, man, we are talking about a patriarchal book full of violence and racism and sexism and polygamy and prejudice, right? A book that has been used by some throughout history as justification for oppression, war, and slavery. 
Come on. Under what circumstances do you keep reading that book? What am I missing here? Atheist Richard Dawkins famously called the God of the Old Testament the least likable character in the whole of literature, and that's unfair. It's entirely one-sided, but many of us might agree with something more like the great philosopher Jeff Tweedy of Wilco, who once sang, theologians. (laughs) They don't know nothing about my soul. I have a story with scripture, and so do you. And the elephant in the room is that we all bring un- we're all unique people with unique stories, and we bring those with us when we talk about the Bible. No one will ever come to the Bible with an entirely clean slate, but man, I wish we could. Because I do wonder what sort of treasures we would find there without our own personal histories to trudge through. So hearing God, listening to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit, that's the teaching series we're in the midst of. God speaks first through Jesus, the living word. He then speaks through us in the gift of prophecy. He speaks to us in the still small whisper to the soul. He speaks among us in creation. And God speaks to us through the written word, through the Bible. Scripture is the training ground for hearing God's voice. If we can learn to recognize his voice from the pages of Scripture, then we can begin to learn his rec- recognize his voice almost everywhere else. But without learning to recognize his voice here in Scripture, it's hard to hear his voice anywhere else. And today's teaching is a sequel. It is part two of a two-part teaching. We started last week with what? What are you holding when you're holding the Bible? And here we are one week later, all of you significantly more tan. And we come to how. How do I hear God through the written word? Three parts. Reading the Bible, letting the Bible read you, and bread. All right, so first, reading the Bible. Let's start with a little bit of history. One of the core teachings, both of Temple Judaism and of the Christian church, is the authority of Scripture, meaning I submit my life to these pages, believing that they hold the words of God himself. But where does that idea come from? Well, the root word of authority is author, meaning that the one writing the story is the one who has authority. And scripture is a revelation. God is revealing himself to us on these many pages through the pen of its many authors. And as the early church practiced this belief, they discovered something. It works. The words on this page, when practiced, actually do lead to life, to the fullest sort of life. This is more than just a book, but it's an invitation. Something like a window that we can wipe the grime off of in a warehouse, gazing on a more expansive world than our own. An invitation to climb into it and to become more fully alive. And today, both inside and outside of the church, we tend to live not by the authority of Scripture, but by a new authority, what Eugene Peterson termed the replacement trinity, holy wants, holy needs, and holy feelings. Wants, the journey of the modern person is one of satisfying my individual desires. Needs, we come to the scripture already decided on what makes up the good life, and so where the scripture aids that vision that I've brought to it, I'm in, and where it doesn't, and then feelings, what I feel, how I react emotionally to this or that information, I trust feeling as the revealer of truth. If it doesn't feel right, don't trust it. And in no way am I trying to entirely throw out those things altogether. Wants, needs, and feelings are very much a part of our spirituality and they should be paid attention to. But there is a major blind spot in deriving all authority from within the self. It ignores the dysfunctional patterns that also live within myself. To state it way too simply, spiritual thinkers have historically called this the false self, meaning some of us live with an inflated view of the self, which isn't quite as bad as it sounds when you say it like that. It just means that you have an imagined story that you're writing that is steadily improving. You tend to be optimistic about life. You assume things will go well, and you're aiming for things to go well. That's what makes 360 peer reviews such a gut punch for some of us. 
And others of us live with a deflated view of self, which is also not as bad as it sounds. It just means that that one word of criticism goes much further and lives in your imagination a whole lot longer than the 10 words of affirmation or compliments that you receive. And we can't just detangle those patterns that live within us all on our own. If my inner world is my one source of final authority, I can't live beyond my false self. My unique makeup of function and dysfunction then gets to sit on the throne of my life and rule. And even if I read the Bible, I read it through the eyes of my own fallen inner patterns because I am still the author. The authority in my life remains the false self regardless of how consistently or inconsistently I have a quiet time. So when those early Christians called the Bible authority, they meant the Bible is access to the access point to reality. Whatever you define as the grounding reality of true life is your authority. And everyone has authority. Everyone gives authority to all sorts of things. We give authority to the American dream or the postmodern vision of utopian freedom, to competing definitions of equality and justice, or to a personal definition of success, or to the Bible. And when you give authorship to God, it's been my experience that something deeper tends to happen. Let me explain. Uh, I'm one of those doer types. So accomplishment is my drug. I love setting goals and crushing them. So the primary way I tend to relate to God is through call and obedience. God assigns me a task and then I crush the assignment or at least attempt to. Recently, though, I'm humming along with a short morning reading from 2 Samuel 9, and it's this beautiful story about how King David uh, finds a lonely, crippled descendant of, descendant of Saul named Mephibosheth. Now, Saul was David's predecessor. He also was his enemy that attempted to hunt him down and kill him. There's a lot of reason for there to be animosity between these two families, but David goes to find Mephibosheth, not to judge him or ostracize him, but to show him mercy and welcome him in. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. So I tend to read the Bible like I'm receiving an assignment from God. I tend to imagine myself into the story as someone like David. Who, God, are you showing, inviting me to show this kind of mercy to? But as I read this, I heard that still small whisper of the Spirit asking me a different set of questions. Tyler, what if you're Mephibosheth? What if I don't want anything from you except for you to live in my house and eat every meal at my table? What if my great plan for redemption is to enjoy your company always and for you to enjoy mine? And what if for you, I'm not asking for more fiery passion but for more rest ease and comfort in my presence. Now that is a different author telling me a different story. It's one that cuts all the way through my accomplishment addiction, that unwinds my false self, drawing my true self to the surface. And when you live in the authority of scripture, when scripture becomes your access point to reality, Psalm 119 starts to make sense. You start to say, yes, Lord, your word is honey to my mouth. It is a light to my feet, guiding me on the path of true life. Give me more of that. Whatever inner tinkering you're doing through your word, work within me until every last bit of me is set according to its original design in your image. The replacement trinity massages my ego. The holy trinity relieves me of the burden of my ego. The French theologian William of St. Therese said this, it is less what one reads than how one reads that counts. And that's our question, how? How do you hear the voice of God through the written word? A good place to start is with Jesus. How did Jesus read the Bible? Today, there are plenty of different views on the Bible, and the same was true of the world that Jesus was born into, but there were a few major camps of biblical interpretation. Two of those are the Sadducees and the Pharisees. 
The Sadducees were upper-class, well-educated urbanites. They lived in central Jerusalem and held a relative amount of socioeconomic privilege. They leaned a bit more in the take-it-or-leave-it direction when it came to Scripture. Uh, They were priests, so they loved God, but they definitely had a certain amount of sophistication bias when it came to the Bible. They wouldn't even recognize some of the prophetic writings, Psalms, and Proverbs as Scripture. Even the Torah, they were open to a broad range of interpretations on, and they didn't believe in anything supernatural. So anything on the pages of scripture that included angels, miracles, or even some forms of prayer was entirely out. They more or less accommodated the Bible to their culture and their day, and they found a way of reshaping their faith so that it fit neatly into their time and place without costing them much of anything. When was the last time that your allegiance to the biblical narrative cost you something? I wonder if we have more in common with the Sadducees than we care to admit. If we might be accommodating the biblical story for the sake of our own convenience, our social convenience, or personal convenience, or some combination of the two. I wonder if we might be accommodating God's story in our day as they did in theirs. And then there's also the Pharisees. You probably know them a lot better. Uh, They were all about the Bible. They read it privately every day and they read it publicly every day. They memorized portions of it so big your memory verse looks comical. But over time, they fenced the Torah, meaning they uh, added a bunch of additional commands to the law that Jesus then called human traditions. In other words, they attached cultural ways of being and thinking and relating to scripture. They took a revelation and turned it into a subculture. What about Jesus? What does Jesus think about the Bible? That brings us to Matthew chapter five. To the Sadducees, Jesus says this, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, set aside is the, an ancient Greek term literally meaning to untie. It's a word picture. Jesus is saying, if you try to pull a single thread out of my story, it is a garment that you're unraveling altogether. So, okay, Jesus is totally out on the pick and choose way of relating to the Bible. I imagine that the Pharisees who were also in the crowd on the receiving end of this teaching were feeling pretty good about their own position at this moment until the very next thing Jesus said. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so that's not it either. In the words of Dallas Willard, and for the record, I'm not quoting Dallas Willard because John Mark publicly chastised me for not quoting Dallas Willard enough. I'm just a guy quoting Dallas Willard, okay? In the words of Dallas Willard, few things are more terrifying in the spiritual arena than those who absolutely know, but are unloving, hostile, proud, superstitious, and fearful. Similarly, John Ortberg writes, to be filled with knowledge about the Bible, but to be unwashed by it is worse than not knowing it at all. So how did Jesus read the Bible? Back to Matthew 5. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And then after debunking the Sadducees and the Pharisees reading of scripture, Jesus concludes, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And after he said that, Jesus goes around practicing and teaching what it says on the pages of scripture. In John chapter 10, he said, the scripture cannot be broken. In Mark 12, Jesus says, David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit declared, and then quotes the Psalms. In Matthew 4, referencing the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from what? The mouth of God. So Jesus calls the Bible words from the mouth of God. He claims that the authors of the Bible are speaking by the Holy Spirit, and he claims that the biblical story is unbreakable. All to say, Jesus believes God is the author of the Bible, the ultimate authority, and Jesus lives in submission to that story. He also very clearly teaches that there's a direct correlation between your submission to the word of God and your experience in the kingdom of God. Least and greatest. That's how Jesus divided it. 
How you read the Bible matters. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, this word abolish is the ancient Greek kataluo, meaning to tear down or destroy. It's mainly a word used uh, architecturally or in reference to construction. It's very similar to the way we use the word deconstruct these days. You see, Jesus' teaching was so radical, some started to think he was deconstructing the Old Testament. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm not here to deconstruct the author's story. I'm here to complete and to fulfill the author's story. I am the embodiment of the story. I am the completion of the promises. I am the climactic triumph. Jesus is saying, you've been reading an incomplete story. I am the completion. And so here, right near the beginning of his ministry, Jesus claims the entire Bible is a story leading to him. The Old Testament all leads up to him. The New Testament will descend in response to him. But Jesus is the hinge point the story turns on. And then in Luke 24, the resurrected Jesus is walking and talking with a couple of dazed disciples on the road to Emmaus after witnessing his crucifixion. And we read, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, meaning Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus walks him through the length, a very lengthy Bible study explaining it all through the lens of himself. So at the end of Jesus' ministry, and the other end of his life, Jesus makes the exact same claim. The whole Bible is a story about me. The Old Testament all leads to me. The New Testament will descend in response to me. But I am the hinge point that the story turns on. Scholars call this the Christological hermeneutic, which is a really fancy way of saying Jesus. The whole story points to Jesus. Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, the Psalms, Proverbs, and Lamentations, the Kings, Judges, and Prophets, the Gospels, Acts, the Letters, and Revelation, it all points to Jesus. I love Jesus, but I'm not into the Bible, at least certain parts of the Bible, typically the ones that are living in tension with the modern progressive city that I call home. I meet more and more people who are gravitating towards some version of that view because let's just be honest. It allows me to hold on to Jesus while relieving a huge amount of the tension that I feel with Jesus. And I have a lot of empathy for that sentiment. I honestly understand its rise in popularity and why some would gravitate toward it. And at the same time, the obvious problem with that sentiment is Jesus. Jesus trusted the Bible. He related to it as authority. He submitted to it as his lens for reality. He claimed the entirety of it, every last syllable pointed to him. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust Jesus. And everyone has to trust someone, right? Uh, recent philosophy or anthropology, a scientific theory or discovery, myself and the view of reality I've derived from my limited inner experience or some combination of all of the above. Everyone trusts someone. I trust the Bible because I believe Jesus is the most trustworthy person who's ever lived. I believe that his way really does lead to life. And so I've gotten in line behind so many others who have said, when I keep in step with this rabbi, I'm stepping closer and closer to the sort of life that he calls eternal. Life that never ends and life that is full even right now. In the words of Andrew Wilson, ultimately, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ the man who is God, the king of the world, the crucified, risen, and exalted rescuer. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him, and I've decided to follow him. So if he acts and talks as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too, even if some of my questions remain unanswered, or my answers remain unpopular. Reading the Bible, letting the Bible read me. I mean, what if I do love Jesus and I've decided to follow him and I really do wanna root my life and practice in the biblical story, but that doesn't just resolve all of the tension. 
Uh, that doesn't take away the problem passages or the disappointments or the times when the biblical story and, and my personal story feel miles apart. I mean, what happens when the Bible claims to be life but sounds to me, at least right now, a lot more like death? Most churches teach people how to read the Bible. Right, ask these questions of the passage. How was it written? Is it poetry or narrative or letter? Who was it written to? What was the original culture and context of its first hearers? And where does it fall in the arc of the biblical story? So we see it as one scene and the whole grand drama. All of those are very good and important questions we should bring to scripture. But most churches fail to train people to ask a second set of questions to let the Bible read you. And these questions are equally important. What am I feeling in response to what I'm reading? Why do I feel this way? And what do my reactions tell me about myself? Ruth Haley Barton calls this the spiritual discipline of paying attention to which scriptures I ignore or avoid. The most common response to passages that we disagree with, don't like, or just don't understand is avoidance. But ignorance or avoidance is uh, to the parts of the scripture that you don't like or can't square with your own story is a crisis of faith waiting to happen. A, a freshman year philosophy class, a, a question the church conveniently ignores or I feel like I'm not allowed to ask, a life experience that doesn't line up with the words on the page, that's all it takes. But if you never get all the way to crisis even, Ignoring or avoiding the parts of the scripture that I don't like is still tragic because it robs you of intimacy. The truth is places of tension in the Bible are always invitations to deeper intimacy with God. I still remember vividly the, the first argument that I had with one of the best friends I've ever had in my life because we both got so mad. We were raising our voices to one another over something so petty that I can't recount it to you right now. I just can't bring myself to do it. And at the end of our argument, he said to me, or after we both apologized to each other, humbled ourselves, he said this to me, look at us. Now we're on our way. And what he meant was, we've seen the worst in each other now. So this is the beginning of real friendship. Seeing the worst in someone else, it's always an invitation to retreat or to go deeper, right? Running into a part of the scripture, not recognizing the God that you're seeing on the page, it's an invitation to retreat or to go deeper. Eugene Peterson said, believers are you with God, skeptics are you with each other. Jesus once famously declared, I am the bread of life. A beautiful declaration seen this side of the cross and empty tomb, but one that caused a whole lot of confusion and disorientation in the time and place that he first said it. Confusion and disorientation that Jesus did not rush to clarify even while most of his disciples left him, according to John chapter 6. Confusion and disorientation that was later turned into the most profoundly beautiful revelation, but only for those who stayed. It started with Peter. From, time to, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter is essentially saying, Jesus, what you're saying is a hard teaching. It's not making any more sense to me than it is for all those who walked away, but I've come to trust the voice that the words are coming from, and so I'm staying with you even if I don't understand the words that are coming from your mouth right now. And so it was Peter and the few others who stayed that got to sit around with Jesus at that table years later when he broke bread and said, this is my body, which is given for you and who watched as his body was broken and nailed to a cross and then were met by the resurrected Jesus on the other side of his suffering. It was Peter and the few who stayed that saw the beautiful revelation that Jesus was pointing to that caused disillusionment at first. The offense turned to beauty, but only those who stayed 
got to know the revelation on the other side of the disorientation. And that is what you do when you come to a part of the scripture that you want to ignore or avoid. You stay. And that does not mean that you will receive direct understanding quickly. You probably won't. And it does not mean that your tension will be resolved in the immediate future. It probably won't. What it does mean is there's an invitation to retreat or to go deeper. And you go deeper by staying. And it has been my experience that so often the places of tension that require us to stay become the most beautiful revelations in the end. So I want to give you a method for argument with God, a way of staying through disorientation to discover beauty. I'm borrowing this from Ruth Haley Barton. It's in her book, Sacred Rhythms. Uh, so go back to that part of the scripture that you want to avoid or ignore and read it slowly and attentively asking these four questions. First, how do I feel about what I'm reading? Where do I find myself resonating deeply? Where do I find myself resisting, pulling back, wrestling with what the scripture may be saying? Simply notice your inner dynamics without judging them. Just honestly notice them and let them be. They have so much to teach us. And then second, why do I feel this way? What aspect of my life is being touched by the scripture? Third, what do those reactions then tell me about myself? What do they tell me about my attitudes and my patterns of relating, my perspectives, my behaviors, my source of authority and where I'm deriving it from? And then finally, and most importantly, Am I willing to look at that part of myself in God's presence? Reading the Bible while remaining in control without surrendering authority, it might inform me about God, but it will not lead me to intimacy with God. Avoiding or ignoring the parts of Scripture that I don't agree with right away won't lead me to intimacy. It actually will prevent it. In the words of Rich Velotas, unless we are immersing ourselves in Scripture for the purpose of being encountered by God, not merely observing the text, we will find our formations in Christ limited. What if the deepest invitations to intimacy with the God you love are waiting for you in the very parts of the biblical story that you have been ignoring or avoiding? And what if you were willing to hold your questions before him and say, Jesus, I, I'm scared to talk to you about this because I'm scared of what you might say if we really have an honest conversation. But, but here's what you've said. Here's the life I'm bringing to what you said. And there's tension here that I'm going to need you to resolve. But I'm staying because I've come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. And so like Peter, even when I don't understand the words coming from your mouth, I trust the mouth that they're coming from. And finally, bread. So is there a practice from the way of Jesus that teaches me how to read the Bible to hear God's voice? Yes. It has historically been called Lectio Divina, which is Latin for divine reading. It's a form of reading the Bible prayerfully and devotionally that's traced all the way back into the earliest documents of the church into the fourth century. Today, it remains a standard uh, practice of reading scripture in a number of global denominations and in most monastic traditions. And keeping those practices, but trying to simplify and make the approach more uh, accessible, we are offering Bread, which is an annual Bible reading plan that we have created in partnership with a number of our sister churches aimed at cultivating this regular rhythm of reading Scripture for the sake of hearing God's voice. And Bread is based on the ancient practice of Lectio Divina. Bread is an acronym taking those same movements from Latin into English because no one speaks Latin anymore. It's a dead language, so it seemed helpful. Um, so I, I want to walk you through that acronym. Read scripture this way for hearing God's voice. First, be. Be still. Take a minute or two or ten before opening the scriptures or reading a single word on the page, whatever you need to still your inner life. 
I would just offer you the uh, picture of a raging river versus a still water pond, right? A river with a strong current. If you were to throw a rock into that river, you would barely see the splash. You would get swallowed up in the current. But if you threw that same rock into a still water pond, you'd see every ripple that goes out from it. Our inner lives are raging. (laughs) They're a river with a current that's going somewhere. Our thought patterns are racing all the time. And so if scripture's to have an impact, we first need to still ourselves so that what I'm going to read can send ripples through my inner life that I live in response to. Then read, read over the passage slowly. Now there are Two commonly prescribed ways of reading the scripture. The first is to read small bits slowly, and the second is to read long form portions of scripture thematically, but small bits slowly, I would say is definitely the place to start. It is the training ground for hearing God's voice through his word. Uh, The novelist Larry McMurtry, he wrote this book titled Roads, which documents this epic like back and forth cross-country road trip he took across the U.S. And what's ironic is that after traveling through all 50 states and having this incredible journey, he deepened in respect for the small rural East Texas town where he grew up and for the life of his father who almost never got beyond the family farm. Near the end of his novel, he writes, I have looked at many places quickly. My father looked at one place deeply and to look deeply into one passage of scripture, therein lies a great opportunity for depth. So read slowly, and then encounter. What do I notice? Don't judge it, don't apply it, don't question it, not yet. Just notice what jumps off the page to you from this portion of scripture. And then go back and read the passage again. Try to focus in on that bit that stands out to you and begin to connect dots as to why and what God might be speaking to you through it. If it's helpful, go back and read it even another time. Think about a sommelier, like savoring a sip of wine, picking up every flavor note versus the way you treat a glass of wine that's like two buck chuck from Trader Joe's that's offered to you at a friend's house, right? This is what we're doing with the passage. We're savoring it to taste every note. We're giving it the dignity of a personality and a voice that speaks. The author Anthony Bloom says, the spiritual writers of the past and of the present day will all tell us, take a text, ponder on it hour after hour, day after day, and then apply. Ask God, how can I embody this today? How can you say yes to your invitation in some real tangible way? How can you become it? Uh, Music therapy has been found to be a really effective form of communication for some autistic children. And it essentially goes where a bunch of different instruments are laid out on a floor and then the child is allowed just to make all kinds of noise for however long until the adult trying to communicate with them picks up some type of rhythm that gets established and the noise they're making. And then you reach for whatever you can get a hold of uh, and you begin to match that rhythm. And this is often the beginning and many breakthroughs uh, in communication between a caretaker and an autistic child. And this is similar to how we apply the written word of God. We listen for a rhythm. And then we look to see what we have around us in our life to match that rhythm. A person to encourage or to forgive or to ask forgiveness from, a prayer to pray, a habit to cultivate, a gift to give, a loss to grieve, a tear to shed, a person to become present to, or something simply to notice. When you hear a pattern, you you see what you've got around you and you match the rhythm. That's application. And then finally, devote. Let the first step you take from scripture always be one into prayer. Talk back to God about what he's speaking to you. Albert Haas says, we do not authentically encounter scripture if we are not moved to some type of prayer, be it praise, gratitude, intercession, or forgiveness. Put simply, let God's written word be a springboard into conversation. Every morning, I have this habit of the first words of prayer that I speak are, Jesus, today I hear you talking to me about 
Because my assumption is that every prayer I pray to him is a response to what he's already speaking to me. And one of the most profound, predictable, and consistent places he speaks to me is through the pages of scripture. So I surrender the first word and I model my prayer as a response. It's that simple. So uh, if this is uh, entirely new for you, then I would just say, if, if it's gonna form you deeply, then it's gotta be something that's regular. I would suggest daily, but if that's a massive leap for you, then just try starting with the weekdays or Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or whatever. Start with whatever feels sustainable for you to build a habit. A 2009 study on reading the scripture surveyed uh, 40,000 people between the ages of eight and 80 and found that reading the Bible had a profound effect both on spiritual growth and mental health, but only if it was read four times a week or more. One to two times a week offered minor benefit, but when it hit four times or higher, the mental health and spiritual growth metrics catapulted. In other words, the Bible won't help you much if it's a shot in the arm. All right, if you're using the Bible the way you use a Red Bull when you're jet lagged, it's not gonna do a lot for you. But if you engage the scriptures more like you would engage a daily vitamin, then it can form you deeply. And give yourself a huge amount of grace as you attempt to cultivate a new habit. You've gotta remember this, that we're talking about reading the scripture relationally, encountering God relationally. This is not about performance, it's about relationship. God is relating to you with grace as you cultivate a new habit. Relate to yourself that way as well, just with this determination, I'm gonna keep coming back to you and I'm gonna be imperfect. But I wanna set this relationship first until it's so within me that it's just the way that I live. Uh, so that's our practice. Bread, Bridgetown Church is now on a shared journey through scripture aimed at our two big questions in the last couple weeks. What? What to read? Well, there's a Bible reading plan in there. And then how? How do I read to hear the voice of God? There's also a five-part guided practice for hearing God speak to me through the scripture. And I'll say again what I said a week ago. If you are currently in a practice of daily reading and prayer and you're just feasting, then go on feasting and don't let me interrupt you. There is no obligation to adopt this as your reading plan. This is an attempt to empower you to read scripture and equip you with everything you might need to be living this teaching, not next Saturday, but next Christmas, so that we have cultivated this way of hearing God in the place that trains us to hear him everywhere else. So bread's on sale today in our bookstore at the info desk, and it will be for every week going forward. It costs 15 bucks, which is the price of the paper and ink. We're just trying to cover the, the printing cost of this thing. And if you want this but can't do the 15, we'll just give it to you. Um, and by the way, speaking of printing, we got some supply chain issues with this thing going on. We worked with the largest commercial printer in our region and this is actually a true story. While printing our bread books, their binding machine broke. So we're behind. But all I'm trying to say is I'm fully passing the buck in the most public way possible. I didn't do it. I'm just saying I didn't do it. So we got like 300 of them today and there's gonna be more than 1,000 here next week. I'm really sorry. Here's my great fear, is that like seven of you feel inspired right now and you really want to begin reading the Bible and then seven days of your life is just going to cloud all that and you won't even have any desire left next week. So I just want to say, you've got this. <laughs> you can do this. We'll have all kinds of bread books available next week. Today, the lucky 300 will begin an incredible journey. So... I wanna end with a photo. Uh, this is Martyr's Cross in the streets of Oxford in England. It's a memorial right in the middle of Broad Street where three Anglican bishops were burned at the stake by Queen Mary, who's known today as Bloody Mary. They were executed because they refused to keep the Bible out of the hands of common people like you and me. Queen Mary and all of the English royalty thought that the scriptures in your hands were a dangerous threat to the kingdom that they were building. So these three martyrs were willing to be burned alive in public over a book because of this guy named William Tyndale. 
He was a linguistics professor at Cambridge. He became fluent in both Hebrew and Greek, and that gave him access to the Bible and its original languages, access that most of the priests didn't even have at that time in history. And after reading the whole thing cover to cover, he came to these two simple conclusions. Number one, the Bible should function as the source of authority, the access point to reality in the life of every person. And two, every follower of Jesus should uh, be able to read the Bible in his or her own language. You're thinking, of course, the Bible's in the nightstand drawer at every Motel 6 in America. But in Tyndale's world, it was illegal, based on a law passed in 1408, to translate the Bible into Middle English. And so Tyndale escaped to Germany, hid under the protection of Martin Luther, and from a basement outside of Munich, he translated the Bible into English. The, the first known English copy of the New Testament is in his handwriting. He smuggled 18,000 copies of the Bible back into England where secret meetings broke out. People would meet in homes to read the Bible in the middle of the night, whispering the story out loud, risking their lives, but also unable to look away from the page. Eventually, Henry VIII got word of this, and he personally purchased 6,000, a third of Tyndale's copies, and burned them on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral. The scriptures being burned on the steps of the church he passed a law that all of Tyndale's Bibles were to be destroyed. The penalty for being caught with one was execution. Tyndale was eventually discovered as a spy. He was arrested. He was tortured for a full year, still refused to recount, recant, and so they burned him alive publicly in London. And as the flames engulfed his body, his final words were, God, please open the King of England's eyes. A prayer God answered. Henry VIII recanted a few years after Tyndale's execution. 85% of the King James Bible is copy and pasted word for word from Tyndale's handwriting in that German basement. Many of our modern English translations, if you read a translation like the NIV, the ESV, or the, or the American Standard, a huge percentage is copied directly from Tyndale's manuscript. His life leaves us with the question, what is it about this library of scrolls that would make you suffer and die just to get a copy onto my nightstand? Or to look at the same question from the opposite side, what is it about the Bible that made historic leaders in power pass laws to torture and kill and try to keep this book off of my nightstand? Why did the Roman Empire and Queen Mary's England and Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union all outlaw or at least place bans, censorship bans, on the Bible? And why, if that's how history's superpowers have treated the Bible, does the modern West not see this book as a threat to the kingdom it's building? Because we tend to read this book more like the Pharisees and the Sadducees than Jesus because we want to enter this story and hold on to our own authority. Because we fear submission more than we want transformation. But this book has brought down empire after empire without firing a single shot. And it can do it again. If only it finds what Jesus called good soil in those who engage the story. May he find some of those here.